I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Simon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times, and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 52, we close out season three with a recap of all we've discussed. So we have another 17 books in the record. Yep. want to thank you for listeners for following along with us. We appreciate your feedback. We've gotten a lot more feedback this season than we ever have, and that's been valuable. Hopefully you see that you know, we, we like the, the give and take and the answer, and we've taken up a couple of the books that you guys have recommended. So, Yeah, new book recommendations are always good. I mean, we started out this podcast with a, with a list in mind, but it was never meant to be exhaustive. So if, if, if any of you listening have something you think – that we're missing that we should read new old doesn't matter let us know it's, it's as we plan for season four we're always looking for new angles and uh, new things to discuss yeah absolutely so keep them coming keep the feedback coming we appreciate it and also we're gonna put in a plug for for reviews give us a good review on itunes or stitcher or whatever help other people find the podcast for season four i think we'll have more books this past season three we had our first guest you've all in which was great and we expect that we'll have some more you know if you have recommendations for that to send it our way or if you have a book that you you see out there that with a living author let us know and we might have some new angles you know we're thinking about reading different types of books maybe from a from the conservative angle all right since we started season three to this to the end of season three the world is kind of turned upside down mm-hmm. and I know many of our lives have changed hopefully only a short-term thing but for, for the meantime you know working from home some of us many of us are blessed to be able to work from home do the conference call thing into infinity all day but uh got with kids home trying to homeschool so we may have some bumps in the road mm-hmm. <laughs> um, during season four trying to juggle so many things at once. Kyle, I know you work from home. Yeah, but now everybody's home with me. So it, it definitely uh, turns everything on its head. But that's <laughs> that's everyone everyone's going through it right now. So it's uh Yeah, it's it's sort of uh and everything we consume in the media is also seen through the angle of the coronavirus and everything else, you know, it's uh it's what people are talking about now. So we thought we'd talk about it in a little bit and how does that affect conservative thought you know have people changed their minds on things because of this i mean we've seen government do things that it doesn't usually do and we've seen conservatives get on board with those ideas in a way they would normally not so i think that's um events make us rethink things yeah i think that's really true and so as we recap this you know kyle and i were thinking we would try to look at through the lens of what would these authors think about the situation and and I think you just hit on one that conservatives are accepting things that they normally never would in a million years. And I, so I think about a guy like Grover Norquist mm. and the Leave Us Alone Coalition. And, you know, a big portion of that coalition 
run small businesses and they're turning around and saying, we need help. You know, government, if you're going to shut everything down, put the economy in a coma, what's going to become of my livelihood and my business and my family? <laughs> yeah. It's the same. A lot of people who would never say we should have more government involvement with business loans to business. And then not to mention the, the basically like halfway to universal basic income we're doing now, but just giving out money to everybody. Yeah. But it, it, it is weird because normally the things that were proposed on the left was sort of like to in reaction to the economy as it functions, you know, and from the mm -hmm. libertarian right, it was sort of like, well, that's how it functions. That's how the world is. How are we, you know, for us to interfere, it's, it's not going to be without consequence. It's not going to, it's going to unbalance things. It's going to have effects you don't anticipate. And then there's sort of the, just the whole justice of it. You know, that if some business fails, I think the libertarian thinking was typically my business wasn't good. We shouldn't prop it up. You know, we shouldn't keep a failure going with the money of people who are doing successful things here. I mean, a lot of what's failing is because of a, a thing that nobody could really prevent with the virus mm -hmm. itself. And a lot of what, what's more is that the government is making businesses fail by telling us to stay home. And, you know, they have the good reason to do it. I mean, this is a serious outbreak, you know, it's not, it's just not arbitrary, but it's, uh, the consequence of that is I think that we're look, we're more willing to look for, to government for answers because they played a large role in changing the economy into this situation. I mean, if government makes you stay home, it's only, it, it could be just to say, well, then they ought to make you whole for your losses. You know, they ought to, uh, if they're shutting your business down, they ought to help you keep it afloat till they can open up again. So that, I think this is something that most of these authors never considered directly because we never really had this kind of pandemic in the modern age. So it's, mm -hmm. I'm sure books are going to come out of this. I think uh, articles already have conservative thinkers trying to consider what this means, you know, what, whether this use of big government is, is a good one. Um, we've seen a lot in the protests are starting up and I don't know. I'm, I can kind of see both sides of it, but it's um, certainly it's, it's, it's caused a reassessment. It makes me wonder too, like who, who exactly is advantaged by this as far as if we were to say the two sides, because on the one hand it's unprecedented, you know, since world war two government spending and conservatives are saying, yes, it makes sense. Many are saying most are saying, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, actually in Congress, the, the last couple bills were passed basically unanimous, unanimously. So, so there is kind of a solidarity on the, but on the other hand, and so it makes it makes you feel like, okay, well maybe, maybe the Bernie's are on the march, but <laughs> at the same time, he, he just got shellacked by a not very strong Joe Biden. Let's be honest. I mean, the guy has got, you know, problems of his own and, but of course you got the, the Yangs of the world to, to your point who see this as their moment for universal basic income. And on the one hand, well, maybe we're kind of getting it because because of the checks. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I kind of feel like he missed his moment. But, of course, we don't know how long this thing is going to last. It, it does make me wonder, though, you know, how much appetite are people going to have for revolution, uh, you know, after this, when probably the bigger appetite is going to be for competence. And, yeah. You know, I think that's, uh, I think that's what dragged Bernie down is that all of a sudden we had to get serious. And I think since the end of the cold war, we've 
been kind of unserious in a lot of our elections. 9-11 sharpened things up a bit. Obviously, that was a serious thing that we had, the voters had to think about. But it seems like we've had more space to indulge pie-in-the-sky ideas. Yeah. So you get these kids coming out of college socialist, you know, and you yeah. think, well, that's that's not very serious. But, you know, we could because we had... We've had a we had a long run of a good economy. We've been free from invasion or major terrorist attack. We've had a you know a little leisure in our thinking, and it, it led to some bad ideas becoming popular because it it didn't matter. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I think there was a sense that we can afford to do anything because look how great we are. You know, you heard that a lot from the Warren folks. Look how look how wealthy this country is. We can, you know, enact our utopian ideas and still not dent that strong wealth, that business economy that's been keeping us afloat. Now stuff got serious, you know, and, and I think a lot of the people who were willing to take a risk on a guy like Bernie are now saying, oh, I, you know, let's not, <laughs> everything else is broken. Let's not break the things that work too. Let's, let's get real a little bit. And uh, unfortunately their only option is uh, an increasingly senile Joe Biden. Yeah. I think you're right because I mean, at least my instinct is this: this has probably set them back, you know, ten years or more. Because to your point, like wokeness and revolution and open borders and climate taxes. I mean, mm-hmm. these are all luxury goods. Yeah, that are maybe available in times of peace and plenty. So maybe if there's a silver lining in this horrible tragedy, you know, that might be it that we can hopefully find some solidarity and. Have have something to complain about that's actually worth complaining about. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we're getting a little foretaste of what a command economy would look like too. I mean, you see, yeah, like the, right. the the protests in Michigan were mostly about not the fact that people were supposed to stay inside because of virus transmission and bending the curve and all that, but it was that they went too far that they were shutting down things that the governor thought were not essential. You know, rope off certain mm-hmm. aisles of the store. You know. A person who has a has two residences can't travel between them, you know, even if he's not meeting anybody on the way, you know, people are yeah. like things are, yeah. they're shutting down like, you know, travel that's by yourself, you know, you can't drive around in your own car. But that's, I think that's inevitable in a command economy because instead of the people making a decision about what goods are necessary and what activities are necessary, you have a small group of people, even one person ultimately in, in these governors and they're going to make mistakes. Like we talked about, I mean, Hayek said that in back in season two and other people did too. It, when you're in charge of everything, you have to get it right. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think we're seeing that and, you know, we're seeing the sort of, you know, things are running out because government tells you to buy this and don't buy that. And then it, these are the trade-offs that we've talked about over and over again. That any action the government takes is going to have consequences that you don't anticipate. And when you do them on an economy-wide scale, nationwide scale, they could be pretty big and we're seeing that yeah. now. So I, I think that that also might dent some of the enthusiasm for socialism from people who think the government can be super competent and determine our needs better than we can and run the economy better than individual businesses can. What we're, we're, what we're seeing now is that they're every bit as bad at it and worse than anybody else that was in charge before. Yeah. We got from this season, Machiavelli say, 
Never let any government imagine that it can choose perfectly safe courses. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You can't avoid one trouble without running into another, he says, which I mean, it's just such deep wisdom. And like you said, we, we've also read that in Hayek and Thomas Sowell uh, years afterwards. And it also struck me too from Machiavelli, you know, his conversation about the need for the prince to have wise advisors and to avoid flatterers. I think Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, these are two people who are pretty wise and I'm not saying they're perfect because they're not and they certainly don't know everything, but I think they're working pretty hard and I, I have decent trust in them and I, I'm actually very glad that there are wise advisors like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think somebody like Dr. Fauci is not afraid, is not a flatterer and I think he's going to tell the president the truth from a scientific perspective. I mean, he's not a political guy. He's a, you know, he's a career He's been with NIH forever, I think, or whichever CDC, whichever agency it is. He's been with the government a long time. He's not a member of this party or that party. And I think, yeah, you're right. That is good. The politicians still have to figure out what to do with that advice. And this is kind of what I see. You know, you see on the left, a lot of people talk about a technocracy, you know, just rule by the best ideas, rule by science. You know, they kind of worship science almost like it's a god. Yeah. And, but even the best science doesn't tell us what the right thing to do with that science is. You know, Dr. Fauci and the rest of them are going to give the president and the various governors the latest version of what they think is happening. And that they're going to, you know, and we're still even figuring things out, but that doesn't necessarily lead to a course of action. The politicians still have to consider the people's rights and the, and the, and the, the logistics of it in a way their job is, Hard, less technically demanding than being a scientist, but it's harder in terms of they have to make judgment calls. Whereas a scientist has to search for truth, they have to a politician has to search for what to do with the truth. And that it's difficult, and they're going to be second guessed no matter what they do. And I think we'll, mm -hmm. you know, people will be talking and writing about this for you know decades and centuries to come. You know, what did we do? What did we do wrong? And we probably won't even know it all in our lifetime. Well, to switch gears a little bit, so we had we had authors such as uh, Yoram Hazoni and Samuel Huntington talk about nationalism and how cultural identities are shaping the, uh, the future. You know, Huntington says, we know who we are only when we know who we are not, and often only when we know whom we are against. And I think that the new face of the adversary, let's say, is is really emerging in this, I think, in this crisis. Huntington says that China has defined the U.S. as its principal enemy. And I like this, trade between countries produces conflict as well as profit. And I think that's, ex those two things I think are exactly what we've seen, you know, with uh, China's unwillingness to warn the world. I mean, it's another example of a, a authoritarian regime, a closed society trying to cover up. See, that kind of cover up, you know, many, many folks on the left would say, well, that's exactly what Trump would do, but not in our society. He just wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah, it wouldn't I mean, work. I think that's, <laughs> I mean, somebody would talk. They always do. Yeah. I think you're right. I, I, yeah, I think this, I, I was also rereading, uh, some sections from the Duick book, uh, hard line about American foreign policy and just about how we came to this, these straits with China, how we, how we got in this situation, especially about George HW Bush and how, even as he was sort of negotiating the end of the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact, he didn't want any disruption in China. And because part of it was because we already had 
what was at that time considered considerable business ties with China. And then since then, it's gotten only, you know, a hundred times more. But mm-hmm. I think even a few years ago, that looked like maybe a wise decision. And I think, I think Bush didn't want to see revolution in China turn bloody because China has a history of that. I mean, they had a, that long civil war that overlapped with the second world war and you're talking about a billion people. You don't want a raging civil war in that population, not just for the disruption to us, but just for humanitarian reasons. So I think he didn't push the way maybe Reagan would have pushed the way Reagan did push the Soviet union, you know, towards reform and towards, you know, ultimately a dissolution. But, uh, as, I mean, I think that the foreign policy angles here, like we discussed in that episode, were you see the consequences. And it, it, it's so hard because I think 10 years after Bush, a lot of people would have said he was right. And a lot of the same people would say he was wrong today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe in 50 years we'll say he was right again. I don't know. It's, uh, But our relationship with China was determined by these different strains within conservative foreign policy and which way Bush went as compared to some other folks in the party has, is making differences that we're definitely feeling today. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good insight. And, you know, from, from Nixon opening China to now has been a, a steady march towards more, better relationships and more, uh, economic integration. And I, I think that we're headed in a different direction now. I mean, you really have a bipartisan consensus uh, that's turning more, a little bit, you know, more protectionist, more isolationist. And you can see the desire here with, with COVID to say, no, we need to bring the manufacturing back to America. And I think as a, as a talking point, that sounds really nice, but as a practical matter, it means, you know, international trade does create wealth. And so there will be trade-offs and, Maybe some of those trade-offs are worth making. Uh, in the in the meantime, though, you know, like Hazoni says, you know, n- nations should be able to chart their own independent course, pursue their interests without interference. You know, act unilaterally in the service of its own people. I feel like the the attitude of a lot of Americans are turning in that direction. You know, we want to insource more of our you know manufacturing. We don't want to have to rely on China for our PPE, uh, the masks, the gowns, so forth. But these sort of beggar thy neighbor or what some folks in policy realms are calling sicken thy neighbor, <laughs> you know, policies in the short and medium term is actually going to create more havoc. You know, oh, yeah. there are supply chains that are out there. And if we're going to destroy those, it will create more shortages, create more problems. And, and let's also not forget that a lot of these, you know, you know Bob Taft protectionist policies actually deepened the depression and made it worse you know, widened it. And so I think on the one hand, I, I, I just have, I just have some real ambivalence, mixed feelings about the situation because I also am angry with, uh, with China's behavior and, you know, want to say like, Hey, we, we, we need to wisen up. (laughs) We've made some mistakes in trusting them while at the same time, you know, like let's not destroy the good that we have. So it's tough. Yeah, I think I think sometimes the debate is presented between free trade and autarky, and it like it's not really. There's a lot in between, and I think how we how we approach trade with China is different than how we would approach trade with Canada or Japan or other places where the rule of law, rule of law prevails. 
you know, China's, you know, if they're not exporting the good masks and things because they want them for their own people, that they're just going to do it. They're going to break all the contracts. In in if if the Prime Minister of Canada said to do that, we would sue in their courts, and their courts might well overrule him. Mm-hmm. You know, because they have laws. Well, and that's what we're having experiencing here. I mean, our administration has said has tried to block shipments. You know, we had that mm-hmm. shipment blocked to Canada. Now that was worked out, but that's really dangerous. But on the one hand, I mean, you can see the strains of that in conservatism through, you know, Hazoni, Huntington, whatever, Duke's discussion of Bob Taft, you know, like there, there are those strains of sort of, let's hoard it, you know, let's keep it, you know, it's, it's us versus them. And, you know, part of me has, I mean, I, I feel some sympathy towards that view, but while at the same time, I'm like, if, if we're blocking shipments of stuff to Canada, guess what they're going to do to us? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the same thing. And, and we're, we're big enough as a country and diverse enough in our geography that we can produce a lot of things. But we're not – there's still always going to be things we import. You know, and, yep. I mean, whether it be raw materials that don't exist here, like, uh, like tea and coffee, or uh, we import a lot of sugar despite uh, Senator Rubio's best efforts. You know, we, we do a lot of uh, – you know, certain like the rare earths and, and nickel are not mined here as much as they could be. So that, that there's, there's no way to just put up a wall against mm-hmm. all trade. And yet, and as we've, we've, we've talked, I mean, Aaron Cass's book, we talked about back in episode 38 talks about the centrality of work as culture, you know, how our culture builds off of work. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately as so many people are laid off. So how, how's that going to change? Yeah. Unemployment is, corrosive in in not just a, an economic way but it it messes with your head you know it when you get out of the habit of being industrious every day it's harder to get back into it mm-hmm. and a lot of people are going to get back into it because they need money and that's all <laughs> that's that's why we work you know so but i mean I, before this started cast i think just started this a new think tank along these lines it was sort of building a new uh, yeah yeah right and i can't remember the name right now but it you know building toward this pro-labor conservatism and yet here we are in the middle of a crisis where they're telling everybody don't don't go out and work stay home we'll send you money you know it's it's it has to get done it's like we said i mean we have to there's not an option in this case but i wonder everyone uses a crisis to advance his own ideas whether we admit it or not Mm -hmm. After this is over, there are going to be people who say, hey, look, it worked. I mean, AOC is already saying this stuff, but I mean, she's sort of financially illiterate. We can't keep this up forever, this level of spending with no taxation coming in. But there are people who are going to say that, you know, they're going to say, well, why don't we just keep sending money to everybody? It worked out fine, right? And well, this is going to be a fascinating experiment because their argument and the Yang argument has been give people money and let them free them to let the, you know, let them do whatever it is that they, their heart desires. And, and yes, there's going to be this foreboding and this, you know, dark rain cloud hanging over, but we'll see, you know, if people start writing the great American novel and they've got all this free time. <laughs> there's going to be so or many what? plague novels. <laughs> <laughs> right. And a lot of them are going to be bad. But, and we'll also see, you know, if, uh, if Warren Casses of the world are right and the argument you and I have made, which is that, work is meaningful 
because of the performance of it. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's meaningful because you go out and do, and you know, you have, you, you demonstrate your value to yourself and to other people. And I think that's going to be fascinating. I mean, there, there'll always be an argument, I guess, against it saying like, well, this didn't really count because, sure. you know, people were worried and, and I'm, I don't completely dismiss that, but, but for those folks who are kind of, kind of still getting paid and kind of mostly sitting at home, you know, what are they going to do with their time? I think they're going to binge Tiger King. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> we'll see if they, you know, if they create the, the new Da Vinci uh, portrait or something like that. But one thing about Cass, too, that really struck me when I was reading back is, you know, he has a strong argument for what we need to do is shift resources from the college track to the other tracks that he says most people travel. Mm-hmm. And I think this is going to have some pretty profound impacts on college. You know, because many, we know many of these colleges, first of all, they, they rely so heavily on foreigners to pay full freight, especially a lot of Chinese, mm-hmm. Chinese nationals who, who come and you know want to use our universities. And so they pay full freight, and basically subsidize other people. And again, like all these, uh, all these extra administration, pro, uh, you know, ad- administrators and and specialty programs that cater to this group or that group, like those are all luxury goods that you can't afford. And when you have your seven, seven years of lean. Yep. And so I really wonder too, like they're already, we already do see that my, my colleague of mine said like 25% or something like that. I mean, maybe it wasn't quite that high, but it was high, but of high school seniors who've already committed to a four-year college, a four-year college, but some some decent percentage of them have already changed their minds. They're either not going to go, you know, take a gap year, or they're going to go nearby at home to a community college or something like that. I, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think the uh, and and also the the amount of distance learning that's going on in colleges is going to make people question the need to live on campus too. And 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 with yeah. that comes a lot of other things. You know, why are we paying so much? For all this housing and food and things that you have to pay for you know, meal plans and whatnot. And when you can do it from home mm-hmm. and if a kid is motivated, he can definitely do it from home. I mean, sure. kids who are going to college to party are probably skipping a lot in their zoom classes these days because they were not that serious about school to begin with. But somebody who wants to learn, wants to get the grades, wants to get the diploma. I mean, we've had, distance learning for a while with a lot of the, a lot of the for-profit colleges that started up, you know, um, they do a lot of internet, you know, you get a degree on the internet and it's, you know, some of them are real degrees and some of them are fake, but the idea has been there. Now we're seeing it in practice. Now we're putting kids who would never have gone for that kind of problem program into that kind of program. And some of them are going to like it. And I think there really hasn't been any innovation in the way colleges taught in in our lifetime for sure. And beyond that, even I think, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you sit in the class and you hear the professor talk, you write a paper, take an exam, but we have all this technology now. And instead of using that to bring down the cost, they're just raising the cost every year. People are getting into debt. I mean, we saw how much people are talking about student loan debt during this democratic primaries. And it's, it's not the first time they've talked about it. I mean, I know I've, I'm still paying for law school. So yeah, it's something that has to weigh on people's minds and yet we've done nothing about it until now. I think this is going to make some people like that, that people are already withdrawing from four year colleges. Like you, like you said, that's uh that's wild. It's, it's 
good to rethink it though. Not, I mean, I, I agree with Cass. Not everyone should go. I think we, we've we've made it into a one size fits all approach. I think it's been kind of true since the '60s. That was the idea: go to college. You know, your parents didn't go. You should go because you know that's the next step toward the American dream. It yeah. can, it can be, and it was for me. It was for you, but there are other methods. And I know I've thought about it over the years. I know in '08 when I got laid off, I wondered why didn't I? I mean. I wish I would have hung out with my uncle who's a plumber and learned his trade, you know, when I was getting laid off from being a lawyer. Yeah. You know, and I don't regret the choices I made. I think it's worked out all right, but I think a lot of people do regret it. And it's because we've focused on that college track. And now maybe, maybe they're going to reconsider that a little in the way we were already starting to reconsider it before the COVID. Yeah. And it'll be fascinating to see how the, how and to what extent the economy changes too, as far as may, maybe the, the, the promise of the internet, you know, access to the world from your desktop, maybe some of that will start to be fulfilled because with so many companies, organizations right now, employees working remotely Mm -hmm. and it's, it works, you know, there, there are aspects of it that annoy me, but there are a lot of aspects that I love. Actually, I'm so happy that I don't have to fight the commute, you know? Yeah. It doesn't bother me that I can wear my, my hoodie to work. <laughs> yeah. <And> jeans. <laughs> I think this could also revitalize communities and, you know, if it's made more permanent, I wrote something about this yeah. for the federalist a few weeks ago. Just the idea that if you can work from home, you don't have to leave your hometown to get that good job. Yeah. You know, in a lot of places that are, cool. it would be great. You know, I mean, places that are the, the rust belt, we've been calling it for years. Well, we could get some of that rust off if people who want to stay are able to stay. Some folks are always going to want to leave. Always want to get the you know the bright lights of the big city, and that's that's been true forever. And that won't that, you know it's not just that they're leaving because they have to for a job, but some people do. Some people like where they live and wouldn't leave except that you know whatever their career prospects are, are focused in California or New York. So mm-hmm. I wonder how much of that could change, and how, and how much not just the wealth that it would bring back to the parts of the country that have been bleeding wealth, but also helping people continue to live in the community they're a part of, I think is part of that good, that Burkean community based conservatism where you're you're really part of something and it's not easy to recreate once you get scattered. Yeah, that could be really cool. I mean, I'm hoping for it. So another issue I wanted to get to Patrick Deneen, great book, probably I would say the best book that we read uh, in season season three, but but he has a conversation about how government has expanded into every area of life, and he talks about surveillance and control of movements, and how that expansion just continues. And when I was looking my, over my notes again, it just really struck me of this current situation because you know there there's some folks who are advocating that we you know in order to in order to have more effective contact tracing or whatever for the disease that what we need is surveillance, you know, government surveillance. I mean, China was successful with this, it seems. South Korea, Singapore, of course, these, particularly Singapore and and, and China are authoritarian countries where they have pretty draconian (laughs) surveillance and uh, punishments for those who violate. I don't know. It worries me, and I think the dean is right that that the the government, you know, kind of moves in that direction. You have, you know... Google and Apple are coming out with an app, but I was wondering what you thought about that. Yeah, I, I have 
I, it definitely concerns me because it's like so many things. Emergency measures will be passed that will never be repealed when the emergency's ended. Yep. I, th- I don't yeah. think government lets go of things very well. Even pe- even when you have candidates running on a pledge to you know turn back some of these excesses, they always manage to hang around. I mean, we're still dealing with New Deal programs and First World War ideas that that came in under Wilson's War Socialism and FDR's New Deal, and they don't get pulled back. I mean, there's there's things that could get pulled back pretty easily. I mean, I, the Selective Service, for example, right? You have to register with the draft. The government knows where you are now. Like in 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 1918, they didn't know where you were. They didn't know anything. They had census records. That's it. Now you've got to- well, you know. To sorry to cut you off, but to that point, like you know, when we were reading the book, uh, Chamber when Whitaker Chambers. You know he's hiding from the he's he's hiding from the Communist Party and stuff like that. It, that stuff just would not be possible. He just picks up and decides, okay, we're going to go to Florida, and you know the whole world would know that in a minute. Yeah, because because where your phone tracks you, because your you know your credit cards, because you know the, the you know you you have to put down your name and have a history in order to rent an apartment at all. None of that would even be possible, and that was from the fifties. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he'd he'd accidentally tag himself in Instagram now, and the and the Russians would be yeah. all over him. <laughs> you know, it's true. But we we have these things, and they, I guess, some of it cannot be unwound. If we want an economy that allows uh, credit instead of just cash, well, then the people, then the companies are going to have to know a lot about you. And if we want an economy that, you know, is regulated by the state in terms of, you know, workplace safety and paying taxes. Well, then they're going to track you when you pay, when wherever you work, they're going to track you to get those taxes. And, yeah. you know, all the different, you know, are you going to be certified to operate that machine or are they just going to let any Joe off the street do it? Well, that certification carries with it, you know, that paper trail. And, you know, it's, if Whitaker Chambers wanted to, you know, get a job as a truck driver in the 50s, all he'd have to show is that he knows how to work the double clutch. Now, yeah. you know, he's got to have the commercial license. He's got to have various certifications. And I, I don't think those are bad things. I mean, it's a lot of the safety regulations are, are good. But they carry with it that weight of the government is watching you. And that's normally something paranoids only focus on. But it's undoubtedly true. And then I think, I think, uh, the big tech is watching us even more closely than we realize. It was a New York mm-hmm. Times article a couple months ago about this, about all the companies that have the location data. And they say it's anonymized. And it, I mean, it, it doesn't have your name on it, but just based on other publicly available records, the Times reporters were able to figure out, oh, look, this cell phone was in this house and it went to this office. That means it's this guy. And then they tracked him around, you know, and then they, they called people up and said, hey, you know, we're writing this article about it. We saw that you went over here and here and here and people were kind of freaked, but we're all doing this and we all kind of agreed to it whenever yeah. we clicked agree or whatever at the end of some, you know, end user agreement we didn't read. Yeah. I, I don't think it's a big step from that to Singapore style surveillance. Or to, you know, and then after that, the, what Solzhenitsyn presented to us, you know, he says, no worker could quit of his own accord. Passport regulations fastened to everyone to places you know, everyone worried that they were informers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Speaking of informers, I mean, you got <laughs> uh, you have an entire like Twitter mob like chasing it, shaming people who get together, you know, without their masks. And uh, I, I don't know. I mean, 
you know, neighbors tattling on each other for going to the park and playing on the, on the swings or something. Yeah. I wanted to think, I know that's just dystopian, but it, it, I don't know. It's I, true. I know. I wanted to think Americans wouldn't do that, but we're no different than other people. We just haven't been under a system that encouraged it. I mean, the mayor of New York was encouraging everyone to rat on his neighbor. There was a, something about that on Twitter the other day. I saw a video from, from the mayor's office and it's, I don't know. It's, it's disturbing. We look at the way the, the Soviets and the East Germans lived and we want to think that can't happen here. We're not subservient. We're not snitches by and large. And yet, well, this kind of gets back to the, the Crito discussion too. I mean, if, if it's the law, should we respect it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, it is, these are the laws they're making. Should we give the law the benefit of the doubt? I think there's a long American tradition of not doing that because liberty is so enshrined in our national ethos. But, well, you know, a lot of people are just saying, well, you know, you got to follow the rules. I'm going to, I'm going to call the police if I see you on your skateboard. Yeah. Yeah. All right. When it comes, I think from, uh, it's not always nefarious reasons either. I mean, it, I was reminded when I was looking over my notes for Jonathan Haidt, John Haidt, that, you know, he talks about how conservatives are more concerned about the group and liberals are more concerned about victims. And you can kind of see that playing out with the whole stay at home thing. You know, the folks on the left, especially the Twitter left, are very strong, come down very hard on the side of we need to stay indoors and it needs to last until, you know, everyone is safe in the most extreme, you know, versions or conservatives, their most extreme would be like, ah, this is kind of, it's nothing but the flu. You know, (laughs) I'm more concerned that our, you know, that our society and our economy can keep moving forward. You know, okay. So 90 year old grandma dies, you know, that's sad, but it's worth the trade (laughs) where, you know, liberals are like that 90 year old grandma, no one can come outside until she's safe (laughs) in the most extreme cases. But, but, uh, then, you know, there's a lot of us in the middle, but, you know, it's, it is interesting to see that kind of play out. Like, I think the concern for the economy, you know, the folks on the left are arguing like, oh, that's just greed. And, you know, corporations want their, want, you know, want their dirty lucre, filthy lucre or whatever. But that's not the, that's not it. What, I mean, people are hurting. People have lost jobs, you know? Yeah. We, we have a cleaning crew, crew of ladies who, uh, who clean our house a couple times a month and they don't, you know, they don't feel like they can come, you know? And of course we've told them they can still, but you know, they still, they, they want to feel safe and maybe they don't feel safe doing their, uh, going from house to house. And then that makes sense. But in any event, like people are, they're not working, you know, their healthcare is being lost. You know, there is, there is real victimhood when it comes to shutting down the economy. But anyway. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the extreme Twitter left on that is, is mostly made up of people who either already worked at home or can easily do so. Yeah. You know, and you're yeah. not listening to the, and this is, I mean, yeah, you have to listen to the worker who is, you know, there's no way a lot of jobs can be done at home. And those people have a valid point. You know, I, you make a good point about how they're saying the, Oh, sacrifice for the economy. That's just, you know, the Dow and whatnot, but it's, that's the economy is all our jobs. The economy yeah. tanks. Yeah. Somebody who doesn't own a single share of stock is affected. 
you know, and, and probably more so than the one who owns stock because the stock market will eventually come back. Your job might not, you know, if, if things stay closed forever, people get out of the habit of going to th- different things. It's, it's hard. It's hard to restart. And that's, and that's what I mean about it's easy to tell it, it's easier um, in terms of responsibility to say, look, here are the facts. Here's how this thing spreads. Here's how it, here's how many people it kills. It's harder to say, all right, well, let's, let's shut everything down then. And that's, you know, that's going to be on the governors and the president and Congress to a lesser extent, because they don't want to be responsible for anything, but it is, it is difficult. Yeah. That ethical trade-off, you know, we, we do make these trade-offs. We just don't do it consciously. But for example, we have, 40 to 50,000 car crash deaths every year. And we've made the decision that we don't want to drive 40 miles an hour on the freeway. We want to drive 70 or 65 or, you know, in, in, in Wyoming, 80. Yeah. And those trade-offs are being made. And I, I'm not here to say whether the, that particular trade-off is the right one or not. And I will be the first to say, I don't know what the right trade-off is for COVID, but I, but it is clear that there are trade-offs, you know, that uh, at some point, we will not be able to save every single, you know, human being from this, from this disease. While at the same time, you know, my grandma is in her eighties and I do not want to see harm come to her. So, yeah, so I, you know, I have real motivation to stay indoors, but you know, back to your point, there's uh, less than a third of the country can actually work from home. You know, you and I are blessed to be able to do so, but most people can't, you know, my neighbor, he's a property manager, you know, he, you can't manage the property from your computer, you know, mm-hmm. you actually have to be on site. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that he's still going to work pretty much. My, my mom works for, for city government in the streets. Um, and, uh, you know, sewage department. Well, that stuff still needs to, needs to run and you can't really do that from a computer at home. Yeah. So you got to go to work. If something breaks, <laughs> a person has to go out and fix it with his hands. That's, yeah. There's no way around that. It's so yeah. Trade-offs. I, I don't, I agree with you. I don't know what the trade-off is either. Um, I'm glad I'm not the one who has to make the decision. All right. Well, that's season three. Close it out. That, that ends our season 17 books and we'll probably take two or three weeks off to recharge our batteries again. Uh, just another plug, give us your feedback, you know, write us another, a good review, help others find the, find the podcast and, We'll be back for season four. Thanks. Catch us next time.